0: Good morning husbands are you ready open your bibles to ephesians 5:25 through 33 will be our text this morning i'll remind you that last uh, sunday morning we had the opportunity to do some housekeeping and clear up what wives submit to your own husbands doesn't mean it doesn't mean women are inferior to men Where were all the male voices in that? What's up, guys? It doesn't mean that women are inferior to men. That's better. It doesn't mean women have no voice in the home. It doesn't mean any of the things that have caused the negative view on Ephesians chapter 5. Now, what we did learn about wives submit to your own husbands was this. Submission is part of the Christian life, not just being a Christian wife. Everybody has to submit. We all have to submit to the Lord, amen? That's why Paul opened this section in verse 21, with submit to one another in the fear of God. Now we also found that to demean and de- devalue women is never of the Lord. So that can't me- be the meaning of wives submit to your own husbands. Now we close with an exhortation to all women, and I uh, introduce to you a phrase or a term my wife invented, which is "feminist." They're phony feminists. They're not real feminists because they're actually anti-women. And the reality is this. Do not allow cultural pressures to rob you of the beauty and majesty of being a woman. You are fearfully and wonderfully made as a woman of God. He has a plan and a purpose for your life. And it is distinct and crafted just for you as a Christian woman and wife. Culture, including Jewish culture at Jesus' time, was very demeaning to women. And we made the point that a lot of Jews prayed, God, I thank you that I was not born a Gentile or a woman. And yet Jesus surrounded himself with women. He even went out of his way to break the cultural barriers of the day when he met with a woman at a well, a Samaritan woman at that. What did the disciples say when they came back from going to buy food for all these people, as they put it? They were shocked that he was talking to a woman and a Samaritan on top of that. Well, that isn't the only time Jesus went out of his way to to correct the thinking of the Jewish leadership in that day. There was a time where a woman was caught in the very act of adultery. And there was a group of men who brought her to Jesus. They didn't bring the guy losers. They didn't bring the guy. They brought the woman in hopes of trapping Jesus into violating the law. They said, what about stoning her? What Moses said that? What do you say? Jesus' answer was this. All right. Whichever one of you guys is not in sin right now, go ahead and throw the first stone. Well, this isn't always understood in the way that it should be, and it's too often overlooked. When Jesus said, whichever of you is without sin, cast the first stone, he was stating that the law you're trying to trap me with says that only eyewitnesses to the person being caught in the act of adultery can throw stones, none of you qualify. You're all in violation of the very law you're trying to use against me right now. And I always thought it interesting that from the oldest To the youngest, the men walked away. The old guys got it first because old guys rule. (laughs) Now, listen, what it doesn't mean is that you should never say anything about somebody's sin. Because the truth is we're supposed to do some personal housekeeping within the church. And we ought to judge one another in the biblical sense, and that is the hopes of calling someone to restoration. He's not saying, you're a sinner, so you can't say anything about somebody else's sin. That's not what that passage means. Where are you this morning? (laughs) Now, since demeaning and devaluing, devaluing women is never of the Lord, and the Bible is the word of the Lord, then wives submit to your own husbands, can't be demeaning nor can it lessen the value of women. It simply identifies how God has arranged the home. Remember, submit means to come under arrangement. God has arranged every Christian household. Now, men, you ready? Three of you are. The rest of you are getting it anyway, so here we go. (laughs) Ephesians 5.23, for the husband is what? Is what? Come on, you chicken, say it. Just because your wife's sitting next to you. For the husband is head. There you go. All right, men, we're on board. Of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Now, we mentioned last week that the word head means the part most readily taken hold of. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Now, last week we titled our time, A Word to the wives, And therefore, in the same spirit, our title this morning is, A uh, Heads Up to Husbands. <laughs> A heads heads up to husbands is our title this morning, and as I said, the word head means the part most readily taken hold of, and the implication is that this is a place of responsibility. Now, the wives were given a word last week, and that word was submit. Now, the responsibility of the husband in the husband-wife relationship can also be summed up in one word, and that word is love. And just as submit is given as a directive to the wife, so too is love given as a directive to the husbands. And some may say, well, if it's a directive, how can it be natural? How can it be? Isn't that making it mechanical? Isn't it then non-emotional? Well, not at all. Actually, what Jesus is saying is here's how you love. Here's how love is done. Now, Paul covers the same subject in 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through the first part of verse 8, where he defines love as this. Love suffers long and is kind, or is long-suffering and kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. Is not puffed up. Love does not behave rudely. Somebody say amen. amen. Does not seek its own. Is not provoked. Thinks no evil. Does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Bears all things. Believes all things. Hopes all things, endures all things. Please read the last three words. Love never fails. Now here Paul employs a string of 15 Greek verbs as his uh, definition or description of love. Now I want you to pay attention this morning that there's not one single feeling and emotion listed among them. In other words, this is how you do love. You don't have to cultivate feelings and emotions. They come on their own. That's why they say people fall in love and sometimes feelings and emotions even get the best of us and they rise up when they shouldn't Are you here this morning and the fact is Paul says I don't need to deal with that in essence he's saying but here's what you do need to know you need to know how to love when the emotions and the feelings come here's how you do the love thing so to speak now The interesting thing about our verses is that wives are never, in this passage, told to love their husbands. Now, later in Titus, uh, the older women are told to teach the young women to love their husbands, but that's the only reference to wives loving their husbands in the Bible. But they're told to submit to them or come under God's arrangements. However, husbands are told to love their wives, and then great care is given to defining and describing that. We'll find out why this morning. But like in 1 Corinthians 13, the love that is in view and the Greek word that is used in this chapter is not the emotional or the familial phileo kind of love or family love. It's not even the eros or the erotic or the sensual and sexual kind of love or attraction that Paul is speaking of. The word he uses for love throughout this passage is agapao. And it's the supernatural love that Jesus has for us, the unconditional love that Christ has for the church. And that is the comparison he is making between Christ's love for the church and husbands' love for their wives. So men, (laughs) I was going to say, are you ready? But maybe I just better say ready or not. Here it comes. Men, are you ready for a heads up? As a husband and a biblical understanding of what it means to be a head, so to speak. The part most readily taken hold of. Well, if you are, and even if you aren't, stand with me this morning and read from Ephesians 5, 25 to 27. And we'll begin our understanding there and finish our chapter uh, through the whole of this morning. Ephesians 5, pick it up in 25 and read down through 27. Husbands. Love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. And Lord, we thank you for our text uh, this and last week. We thank you for all the words we get to study from your book that is infallible, and all of it is inspired. And Lord, we hold it in high esteem and believe that every word is pure and true. And Lord, so we pray that you would give us ears to hear what you're saying this morning to husbands. And help us, Lord, not just to hear it, but help us to do it. And We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, the first heads up to husbands comes through Paul's use. Of five verbs associated with Christ's love for the church and these are the defining features of being the head of the wife. We're told that Jesus and therefore husbands love, give, sanctify, cleanse, and present. Now in Isaiah 54 5 through 8 Israel is told for your maker is your what? Is is it up there? Okay what? Husband (laughs) The Lord of hosts is his name, and your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. He is, called from the, he is called the God of the whole earth. For the Lord has called you like a woman forsaken and grieved in spirit, like a youthful wife when you were refused, says your God. For a mere moment, I have forsaken you, speaking of the diaspora. But with great mercies, I will gather you, speaking of what's been happening in Israel in recent years. With a little wrath I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting kindness I will have mercy on you, says the Lord, your what? Your Redeemer, the one who buys you back. Now, the picture of marriage and representing our relationship with God is found in both Testaments. Though so it's hidden in the Old, it's fully revealed in the New. The relationship God had with Israel, the Son with the Church, uh, are parallel together, and you could make a case for the five attributes of Jesus' love for the church there in Isaiah. The Lord is Israel's husband, and he loves them. He gives them redemption. He has mercy and sanctifies and cleanses them and gathers them with everlasting kindness in the end that he may present them to himself, even as Christ presents his bride to himself. Now, it's obvious, listen close, guys. It's obvious that human husbands cannot sanctify their wives. That's a work of God. He's the one that sanctifies us. He's the one that sanctifies our wives. He's the one that sanctifies all believers. Nor can we cleanse our wives and wash them with the water of the word. Jesus does this too. For he is the word of God. Amen. So what exactly is he saying here? He is saying that what Jesus has done for our wives, he has assigned the husbands to promote and protect. We are to protect their sanctity. We are to protect their purity. Jesus sanctified and cleansed them, and we are to protect that. Jesus washed them with their word, and we are to make sure our headship is according to God's word. Jesus gave himself so that those things might be theirs and ours. But in the marriage relationship, the part that needs to be most readily taking hold of this is the husband. And we'll see why in our last point. And Paul says, Husbands, Love your wives. And then he defines the kind of love he's talking about as the kind of love Christ expressed to the church, beginning with giving himself for her. Now, again, I found myself very encouraged by some of the commentators this week, even though I was a bit nervous again about what I was going to read, because there are many Bible teachers today who just don't seem to get this whole husband-wife thing. And we'll talk more about that in a moment. John Stott said this, If headship means power in any sense, then it's the power to care, not to crush. Power to serve, not to dominate. Power to facilitate self-fulfillment, not frustrate it or destroy it. And in all this, the standard of the husband's love is to be the cross of Christ, on which he surrendered himself even to death in his selfless love for his bride. Listen now. The wife's submission is to be given to a lover, not an ogre. John Calvin said this almost half a millennial ago. Husbands should not be cruel toward their wives or think all things that they please to be permissible and lawful. And what he's saying is you shouldn't demand your wife do everything you like. For their authority should rather be a companionship than a kingship. This is how the commentators, respected commentators, view this. And I would say this. Headship is not dictatorship. Our headship is the same as Christ in relation to the church. It's a love that gives sacrificially of itself, even to the point of death. It's a love that protects and promotes the sanctity and the purity of the wife. And headship is when a man has a goal of presenting his wife to Christ without spot or wrinkle, holy and unblemished by their treatment of them, the same way Christ presents his church to himself. Now, here's the first heads up, husbands. Listen, loving like Jesus is a manifestation of divine power. Loving like Jesus is a manifestation of divine power. Now, I have heard more than once, many times, Husbands being accused of being on a power trip. To that I say, let's get on one. Well, let's get on a divine power trip. Let's do it God's way. Let's walk in divine power and love our wives and give ourselves to and for them. I'm not going any further until I hear some testosterone out there, responding. it's funny. Where you at, men? Let's walk in divine power and love our wives and give ourselves to and for them. Let's protect the purity and sanctity of our homes. So that when they stand before the Lord someday. They're not covered in bruises. Or emotionally scarred because of us. Because Proverbs says in 18.22. He who finds a wife finds a what? A good thing and obtains favor from who? From the Lord. Proverbs 31.10 and 11 says. Who can find a virtuous wife? For her worth is far above rubies. The heart of her husband safely trusts her, so he will have no lack of gain. Now, I was telling Terry, I always find it interesting that women spend so much time studying a passage written to men. (laughs) Proverbs 31 is written to men, it's not written to women. It's the words of King Lemuel, the queen mother, to her husband who was searching for a wife. And she told her boy, here's what you're looking for. Proverbs 31 needs to be taught at men's retreats, not women's retreats. Amen. And husbands, I want to challenge you. Go home and read Proverbs 31 and see what God has to say about what a virtuous wife really looks like. Because here's what you're going to find. She's praised by her husband. He doesn't tear her down with his words. He builds her up. She's industrious. She buys and sells a piece of land. She's smart. She's independent. And the Lord will say she's even of a greater value than precious stones. And if you got one, you've obtained favor from the Lord. And listen, men, maybe you're thinking, you know, if she'd be more like that Proverbs 31 woman. Stop that right there. Don't be thinking that way. Why? Because you know what? You're going to find what you're looking for. If she's examining you, looking for defects, she's going to find them. If you're examining her, looking for defects, you're going to find them. Because none of us are perfect. So that's not what you're to be looking for. You're to be looking for the ways that she is a blessing to you and encouragement to you and start looking at her through the lens of Jesus' eyes instead of examining her for flaws. Now, I, you know, I really appreciate the front row over here today, but there, there's, there's other rows in the church. Amen. Now, thank you. Thank you. Now, 28 to 31. Let's keep rolling. So husbands ought to love who? Their own wives as their own bodies. For he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. There's a oneness presented in the church-Christ relationship. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become what? One flesh. Now, men, I thought it beneficial to start this section of what it exactly looks like To love your wife as you love yourself through a story. Uh, There was a couple who were celebrating their 50th wedding anniversary. And obviously, to have 50 years married, you've got to have some years under your belt, so to speak. And at the end of the day, the older couple was very tired. The guests had gone home. All the family members had said their goodbye. And they were ending the day like they had ended every other day for the last 50 years. And that was the husband made a piece of toast for each of them as they settled down for the evening. Well, as he had done for all 50 years, he had opened a new loaf of bread and made two pieces of toast and came and presented his wife with the heel. Well, she was tired and this rubbed her the wrong way as it had before. And she said to her husband, why in all these years, every time there's a new loaf of bread, I wind up with both the heels, the one in the beginning and the one in the back. Is that what you think of me, that I deserve the heel and you should get the better piece? And then she demanded with a raised and angry voice, why do you always give me the heel? And he said, because it's my favorite piece. Ouch! <laughs> Let me tell you a little secret in our house. My wife doesn't like to heal, so I eat it. <laughs> Paul is further illustrating the importance of the five characteristics of headship. Loving, giving, sanctifying, cleansing, and presenting through the oneness that is created through marriage that he establishes all the way back in Genesis 2.24. And some see the verses we just read as a transition from the spiritual element of marriage to the physical or the sensual aspect of marriage that only a husband and wife can share, according to God. I just thought I'd slip that in. I don't know if you picked that up, but I don't agree with that assessment of this or interpretation. And he does use use the word flesh, but I think the matter is still spiritual. And I think what he's doing is he is trying to elevate the thinking of the husband to understand more fully that he and his wife are literally one. It's not just a figure of speech. They really are one. And he goes all the way back to creation to establish that fact. And in Mark chapter 10, verses 2 to 9, tuck these verses away in your mind for a a future reference. The Pharisees came and asked him, Jesus, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife, testing him? And he answered and said to them, What did Moses command you? And they said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and to dismiss her. And Jesus answered and said to them, because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote you this precept. But from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. And then he quotes what Paul quoted. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. And the two shall become what? So then they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. The word separate means to place room between. And there's a lot of people that allow the devil room in their marriage. And we should not be doing that. Amen? Now, the point Paul is making is that the oneness brought to a husband and wife through marriage is real. And to treat your spouse poorly is the same as treating yourself poorly. And Paul says, nobody does that. Nobody hates their own flesh. They feed and care for it or uh, cherish and nourish it just like the Lord does the church. And Paul says the husbands, now listen close, men. Paul says the husbands ought to love their wives as Christ does or, or like they do their own bodies. And obviously as Christ does the church. And the word translated as ought means to be under obligation. It means to bind morally. It can also be translated as to owe. And Paul is saying we are under obligation to Christ as husbands to love our wives the way Christ loves the church and gave himself for her. Example, you love them the same way you love yourself. You treat them how you would like to be treated, as we'll see in a moment. Now this again is a principle established in both testaments. And we find in Malachi, and I want to spend a couple of minutes here because these verses are just terribly, terribly abused and misunderstood. In Malachi 2.13-16, the Lord says to Israel, an indictment against them, this is the second thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and crying, so that he does not regard the offering anymore nor receive it with goodwill from your hands. Yet you say, for what reason? Or in essence, why are you treating us like this, Lord? Here's God's answer. Because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth, with whom you have dealt out treacherously. Yet she is your companion and your wife by what? Covenant. But did he not make them one? Same argument Paul's making. Having a remnant of the spirit and why one? He seeks godly offspring. Therefore, take heed to your spirit and let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. For the Lord God of Israel says, and man, when God starts throwing out titles, you better stand up and listen. The Lord God of Israel says that he hates what? Divorce. That word means to break the covenant. For it covers one's garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, take heed to your spirit. That you do not deal how? Treacherously. Treacherously. Now, I wanted to incorporate this today, obviously, because it fits in with establishing the role of the husband and in the treatment of the wife. But I wanted to incorporate it as well because I cannot tell you how many times I have been sickened by women telling me that a pastor told them you need to stay in an abusive relationship because God hates divorce. Listen this morning. To say something like that means that to God, the ordinance is more important than the people in it. And that's not true. The word divorce means to break the covenant, as I mentioned, and treating your wife treacherously is breaking the covenant. Why would I say that? God hates divorce because it covers one's garment with violence. The Hebrew word for garment is a Hebrew euphemism, For the wife, God hates treacherous treatment of the wife, therefore, see that you do not treat your wife treacherously because that is divorce, says the Lord. Now, this is what Jesus was talking about in Mark, what that we read a moment ago, because at that day, the words of a prominent rabbi named Hillel, who was a liberal and interpreted scripture differently than the conservative counterparts that he had, just like today. There was a phrase in, in Deuteronomy 24.1. In the Hebrew, it is ervat devar. And it means fault or indecency or an act of indecency. And it is a scriptural allowance for divorce. Well, Rabbi Hillel interpreted ervat devar as anything The husband doesn't like. And for centuries, the Jews believed and taught that a man could divorce his wife for any reason at all. If she burned breakfast, that's grounds for a drive down to the restaurant. That's not grounds for divorce. Amen? By the way, I've never had a burned breakfast. And the truth of the matter is, as I said, the Talmudist and the Jews taught this principle of unrestricted rights to the husband, to divorce. And you know what Jesus was saying in Mark chapter 10 that he read a moment ago? He's saying, you know what? Hillel was wrong. Malachi was right. Don't treat your wife with treacherous. Now, listen, here's the next heads up, husbands. Are you ready for this? Listen, happy wife, happy life is not just a saying, it's biblical. Happy wife, happy life is not just a saying. It's biblical. And listen, guys, you still here? Yeah. Telling your wife to submit when you're not loving her as you do yourself is not going to make anybody happy. That's going to lead to an unhappy home. Loving her like Christ loves the church is going to make everyone happy. And she will gladly submit to that. And Husbands 319 says, Husbands or 319. <laughs> I better slow down. I'm getting too excited here. Colossians 3.19. Maybe it ought to say husbands 3.19. Colossians 3.19 says, Husbands, love your wives and do not be what? Bitter. bitter. towards them. The word bitter means to exasperate. Now, since the husband and wife make up a unit of one, right? And we ought to love them just the same way that we cherish and nourish ourselves. I have to say, I don't know about you. But I do not do things that exasperate myself. I do things that I like. Don't you? Things you like to do are pretty easy to do, right? Right? <laughs> things you like to do are pretty easy to Maybe because they're easy to do, that's why you like them. I don't know. But that's true for all of us. We don't do things to frustrate ourselves. We don't do things to exasperate ourselves. I do things that I like. I do things that make me happy. And since my wife is the rest of me and I'm the rest of her, pleasing her is going to be pleasing to me. And for the most part, those who don't believe it are those who have never tried it. Happy wife, happy life is biblical because nobody ever hated themselves. And they cherish and nourish their own bodies. Now, Here's the biblical foundation for this and tells you how old it is. Deuteronomy 24.5 says, When a man has taken a new wife, he shall not go out to war or be charged with any business. He shall be free at home one year and bring what? Happiness to his wife whom he has taken. Happy wife, happy life is not just a saying. It's not just a formula. It's a biblical precept. And in the context of what Paul has been saying, we would be safe in saying it's a mandate. That husbands make their wives happy or do the things that are pleasing to them. Now, Matthew seven twelve, we find the golden rule, which is do unto others before they do unto you. <laughs> Therefore, whatever you want men to do, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. In other words, Jesus is saying, here's the summary conclusion of what the Bible teaches. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you as far as interpersonal relationships. And listen, if the golden rule is to be applied in life, certainly it should be applied first in the most intimate personal relationship, and that is that of a man and woman in marriage. How do you love your wife like Christ loves the church? Treat her like you want to be treated is a good place to start. Somebody say, amen. Now, 32 to 33, and we'll wrap up our time. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself and let the wife see that she what respects her husband. Now, there's some debate about exactly what the great mystery is referring to, but I don't think it's all that mysterious because it's right there in front of us within the context of what we're reading. Some say the great mystery is the mystery of marriage. Well, that's no mystery. It's all the way back in Genesis. There's nothing Mysterious about marriage. God has declared it. As a matter of fact, I've always found it to be interesting that marriage is the only pre fall ordinance that we still have today. Everything else was corrected for man's behavior. Man was given the ordinance of marriage before man even fell into sin. God did this work of making them one. And that tells us it is sacred above everything other than the blood of Jesus itself. Now, listen, this is not referring to marriage. That's not the great mystery. I believe the great mystery is that until there was a Christ, there couldn't be a church. And once there was a Christ and there was a church, then the mystery became more obvious because then the love of Jesus for his church could be paralleled with the Christian marriage. Until then, that relationship was hidden. Now, this fits perfectly as a setup for Paul's summary conclusion. In verse 33 where he capsulizes the three verses to the wives followed by the nine verses to the husbands as let the husband love his wife like he does himself for they are one is what's implied and let the wife see she respects the role of God assigned to her husband now in his summary conclusion Paul reverses the order of the directives that he began with he first addressed the wife and then he addressed the husband, and now he addresses the husband first, and that is not without meaning. Now remember, we are in the specific application section of Paul's admonishments that Christians walk circumspectly, meaning exactly as the Bible describes. Now Genesis three sixteen to 19, we're told, The Lord speaking to the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children." Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Then to Adam he said, because you have heeded the voice of your wife, and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat of it, curse is it the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the herb of the field, and the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall what? Did not the Lord say, don't eat of that tree for the end of the day that you eat of it? You will surely die. And death began its march back to dust at that moment in time. This is the fall of man. These are the consequences of the fall of man. But we need to note, husbands, that God said, because you heeded the voice of your wife and not my voice, cursed is the ground for you. Listen, husbands, God isn't saying men don't listen to your wives not what he's saying. I'm not sure you're convinced, but that's not what he's saying. God is saying, husbands, do the husband thing the way I said to. Or things won't go well for you or your wife. And this is why Paul reversed the order of addressing husbands and wives in his conclusions when he said, husbands love your wives as Christ loves the church. Wives submitting to the husband is going to come naturally after that. And listen, there's been much written about this wife's desire shall be for her husband. And there in Genesis and someday that means the wife's going to really wish she had her husband's position. But he's going to rule over her, meaning have dominion or position over her, whether she likes it or not. The problem with that interpretation, it makes the marriage negative, And it makes an unacceptance of the God-given roles The norm. Women, you know, you're going to have to fight against this. uh, Wanting to rule over your husband and all these other things. That's not what he's talking about at all. Because when a man loves his wife like Christ loved the church, no woman's going to fight against that. No woman's going to say, I wish I was him. Now, what exactly does it mean? I don't know, so we'll just have to. Now, the closing words of Paul that wives should respect their husbands is interesting because he uses the Greek word phobeo. And that word is or means to be frightened or even exceedingly reverent. Now that doesn't mean wives should be frightened of their husbands. Come on now. That doesn't mean wives should be frightened of their husbands. It can't mean that because the church is not supposed to be frightened of Jesus. And that parallel is drawn in this chapter. The word means they should be frightened for their husbands. Because of the ominous role that God has given them. Now the word can and would mean in this context exceeding reverence. And we find it in the initial verse of this section. 521 submitting to one another in the phobeo of God. Fear is the same Greek word translated respect. It's in the same chapter discussing the same content within the same context. So respect has to mean in the fear of God. And indeed it does. Wives, in exceeding reverence for God, submit to your husbands. Because this is how he has arranged the home. Husbands, this all happens by loving your wife as yourself or as Christ does the church. Now, here's why this is so important to men. And here's our last heads up. And it's, it's huge. It's really important. Listen this morning. How you love your wife is a picture of Christ's love to the world. How you love your wife is a picture of Christ's love to the world. The Christian marriage should be different from the non-Christian marriage. Just like the Christian life should be different from the non-Christian life. And in 2 Corinthians 6.14, Paul underscores how important this is, where he says this, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial or the devil? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? Now, it's interesting that, you know, Paul says, don't be yoked with unbelievers. And there are some uh, who say that has nothing to do with marriage, which I think is a bit ridiculous because in the great imitation of Matthew 11:28, 28, what does Jesus say? Take my yoke upon me and learn from me." Now when we take his yoke upon us, don't we become the bride of Christ? Isn't the bride of Christ and Christ is what we're talking about in this passage? So how can they say that has nothing to do with marriage? It has everything to do with marriage. And the truth is that's kind of a ridiculous interpretation, especially since Christian marriage is a betrayal of Christ's love for the church. And the yoking together with a non-believer in marriage makes that marriage incapable of communicating this most sacred portion of marriage. Now, that doesn't mean that uh, a believer and an unbeliever can't have a kind and loving relationship. We know that there are those who do, but it does mean that they can't share the most wonderful part of marriage, which is the spiritual aspect, the sharing of the most important thing in our life. I love my wife. i do anything for her. But the most important thing in my life is that Jesus loves me and gave himself for me and saved me, and changed me, and told me how to love her. That's the most important thing in life. And the fact that she shares that same love, and he's the most important thing to her, is what makes our relationship what it is today. Now, that doesn't mean the believing spouse cannot share with others the love of Christ, cannot communicate it properly. It just breaks down the ability of the marriage to do that. And listen, young people, dating people, young, old, whatever if you're in that dating uh, thing in your life right now dating now listen are you listening you guys listening? I know they're listening, but is everybody else listening listen dating a non-believer isn't just unwise, it's forbidden you know When Paul says do not, that's not a suggestion. That's a command. Do not yoke yourselves with unbelievers. Now, again, it doesn't mean if you're married to a non-believer or if you're married to a non-believer because you got saved after you got married that you need to divorce your mate. Paul dealt with that in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. He said, you know, if the unbeliever is willing to dwell with them you know, that you are to uh, continue to do so. You don't go running off because one person is a non believer. If they're willing, and the word dwell in there means to live as a family, to treat with respect and honor, that you're not to uh, divorce. That's what Paul says. Now, he's addressing this issue in 1 Corinthians because it's important because the Corinthian church, people were getting saved and saying, My husband's not a believer, my wife's not a believer, I've got to leave him. And Paul said, no, that's not the point. You're missing the whole point. The fact is, listen, if you're out there searching for someone and you're a Christian, then you need to have as your first criteria someone else who is a Christian. Thus says the Lord. Amen? Amen? Now, Paul says, husbands, love your wives like they're the other half of you. Because they are. Wives, respect your husband's divinely appointed role. Not as a subordinate, not as some inferior to men, but as one who is under a husband who loves his wife like Jesus loves the church. Provision and protection over you. And listen, when the world sees that in the Christian marriage, when they see that in the church, instead of today's divorce rate that's almost as high as in the world, they're going to see that knowing Christ makes everything better, including your marriage. And therefore, it's an opportunity for us to present the gospel to every creature. Men, it's not as hard, I think, as we make it out to be. Wives, it's not as hard as we make it out to be. It's really a simple thing that Paul concluded. Husbands, love your wives like Christ loves the church. Wife, submit to that. Not that big a deal, is it? So let's cut all the negativity around it. Let's just simply do what the Bible says because that's what this section is about. See that you walk circumspectly. See that you live your life. See that you live your marriage exactly as the Bible has described. And your life is going to be a blessing and your marriage is going to tell the world about Jesus. And that's what we ought to be doing. Somebody say, Amen. Amen. And Father, we are grateful once again for your matchless word this morning. We thank you, Lord, for not skirting the tough stuff and uh, telling it like it is through Paul, uh, especially, Lord, who had such a wonderful way with words. And uh, we see that uh, because of the inspiration of the Spirit in his life. So help us, Lord, as husbands to love the way you do. And Lord, help the wives here to uh, respect that role that the husbands have been given and see it with exceeding reverence as a great responsibility as they love them, as you love us. We thank you for these things that we've learned these past couple of weeks. And help us, Lord, just to summarize, just to do it right. And we ask the aid of your Spirit in doing so. Thank you that the supernatural love that's necessary in marriage is ours to have. And therefore, all the things that we have talked about, we can do through Christ who strengthens us. We pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, Interesting thing, I I wanted to mention this at the beginning of the service, and I, I failed to do so. Paul is not some single guy telling married people how they ought to do it. Kind of like people with no kids giving parental advice, you know, that kind of thing. This isn't what it's about, because the reality is, in order to be a Pharisee, you had to be married. Not only did you have to be married, you had to be a parent. Because the Pharisees said, he who is not a father is no man at all. Paul was once married. Paul was a father. Do we see anything about his wife or kids? No. There's no evidence in Scripture about that whatsoever. I just say that because a lot of people say, well, you know, the words of Jesus and the words of Paul are two different things. You have to take Paul's word as Paul's word. No, you have to take Paul's words as the Holy Spirit's word. And they were also the voice of experience. He knew what he was talking about because he was once a married man, and he was still a father. So let's just keep those things in mind. Amen? Would you all stand?